The following podcast is not intended to be an all-encompassing account of immigrant experiences and migrant relations on notions of home, authenticity, and belonging. As it is often the case, our podcast reflects our subjective assessments and experiences as members of the Hispanic and Latinx community in the United States. Essentially, your mileage may vary. Underrepresented South American cuisines. How do they make inroads in a city like Chicago, where there isn't a large established diaspora community? To find out more, we interviewed Peruvian and Venezuelan restaurant staff in the second city. Today, a look at these restaurants and their relation to authenticity, representation, and cultural engagement. Hi, I'm Jorge Clavoavas. And I'm Stephanie Alejandra Ortega. And this is Sabor. An exploration of food, diaspora, and belonging. So, considering that this is our first episode, I think it would be to the benefit of our audience if we introduced ourselves. Yeah. So, Stephanie. So, I'm a fourth year in the college at the University of Chicago, and I'm a first-generation American and daughter of Peruvian immigrants. And tell me about you. So, I am also a fourth year at the college at the University of Chicago, but I was born in Venezuela to a Venezuelan father and a Spanish mother and raised in the U.S. So I moved to Chicago four years ago for college, and I quickly realized that there wasn't a lot of Peruvian food around me, um, particularly in Hyde Park and that most of the Peruvian community uh, was up north. So it was very different coming from South Florida, uh, living in a community that was very heavily Peruvian to kind of just like not see my community around me. What was the experience for you, Jorge? Right, so it's actually pretty similar in the sense that I was also raised in South Florida um, in a prevalently white American community of like 50 miles north from Miami. But at the same time, I was close enough to the food culture and the variety of expat communities in Miami to be able to engage both Venezuelan cuisine and Spanish cuisine in a readily accessible form. And that is certainly not the case in Chicago for me either. Um, I would say that in Chicago, it's been a challenge trying to find places that I would say are representative of the foods I grew up with. Um, Venezuelan restaurants in Chicago, in my experience, have a tendency of doing well their first 18 to 24 months, and then they just sort of fall by the wayside. Something happens, they suddenly close, and then you're left sort of wondering, like, okay, cool, where am I going to eat, you know, the food of my, of my cultural background now? Right. Um, so that, that's been a little frustrating at times. Um, there's one place I remember really fondly in Lincoln Park in a neighborhood on the north side um, that was called Venezuelan Bull Grill. And it was really beautiful because you'd walk in and it looked just like the streets of Coro, which is a city on the coast of Venezuela. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, actually. So you already got very much a, a, a sense of, of home or what the place was supposed to be about. And the food was great. Um, but I don't know what happened that it just suddenly closed. It went from being a place where the Venezuelan opposition 
would stage protests against the Chavez and Maduro regimes to just not being there anymore and me having to look for a place to replace it, essentially. Um, what would you say your relationship has been to Peruvian restaurants in Chicago? Um, what are what are they like? Or are they relatively uniform? Or is there a difference in, in what, what you've been able to obtain from each of them? So before this podcast and, and going to different, um, or I guess just one Peruvian restaurant, <laughs> right. um, I really didn't explore the Peruvian food in Chicago, just somewhat just forced on the notion that I, you know, was living far away and and didn't have a car. So, you know, to travel two hours on public transit to have Peruvian food seemed um, just completely inaccessible for a college student uh, who, you know, is obviously in school all the time, working all the time. So, um, yeah, and I think, I think, one of the like starkest differences I think for me was just not having Peruvian products like in my neighborhood supermarket. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting how much um, you know not having the specific ingredients or um, you know spices and things that you need to make your your food from home um, is greatly limited when you just don't have that. Um, right. So. So for the sake of our listeners. Why don't you give us just like a quick rundown of or like a basic crash course on Peruvian food and, and, you know, the kinds of products that you have found to be necessary to be able to recreate Peruvian cuisine here in Chicago? Yeah, so Peruvian food is a mixture um, of Afro-Peruvian, you know, Spanish, indigenous, uh, like Chinese and Japanese immigrant communities, um, different contributions to the culture. Um, so it's a very eclectic mix um, of influences and, you know, even, yeah, just geographic location within the country, like there are stark differences in the type of food that people eat, you know, it's different for Peruvians in the coast or, you know, in the mountains um, or in the jungle. It's all different. It's It's one cuisine, but it's all different types um, within it and yeah most of the you know ingredients that I have trouble finding are like we use this like spicy pepper that isn't used in other um, cuisines like it's solely used in Peruvian cuisine and just different types of like seasonings and, and you know spices are just not you really don't find it in the U.S. or if you do, if it's like solely in like Miami or New York, not even like in California. <laughs> like it's, right, sure. it's it's very very limited. So most of the time we just bring it back from like our trips to Peru. And tell me some more about Venezuelan food. Yeah, sure. So contrary to. I would say popular belief about South American cuisines. Venezuelan food isn't spicy, but it's certainly flavorful. Um, I would say that in the U.S., the food that you most often see is representative of the capital of Caracas, because most of the expat community in the U.S. is from Caracas. Um, So there's different, I would say, registers to it, if you want to talk about it that way. So you can go from more humble dishes like an empanada. Um, the, the Venezuelan empanada is um, 
largely corn-based um, for the flour um, to an arepa, which is also, it uses that same corn flour um, to make sort of, I guess the best way of describing it to someone who hasn't had it is a corn flour patty, which you then cut open as if it were a bun to fill it in with ham, cheese, um, carne mechada, which is a, a preparation of uh, beef. Um, uh, you, you can even do salad. You can do so many things. So that's that's essentially like the quite literally the bread and butter of the Venezuelan is <laughs> the arepa for breakfast. Um, but you can have it at any time of the day. Um, I'd say that, yeah, like other Latin American cuisines, you do see a lot of, you know, meat with rice and beans, but preparations largely are very dependent on the region. So like I grew up, for instance, like sprinkling my black beans with sugar, <laughs> which is something that to most people sounds super peculiar, but yeah. it's, it's a pretty, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But it's a pretty Venezuelan thing to do. Um, same thing with putting, just like sprinkling a little bit of salt on your fried plantains on your tajas. Mm-hmm. That's, that's also um, very, very traditional. Um, so yeah, it's it, it largely works with being a point of conflation of indigenous Spanish and migrant communities just coming together um, in the cuisine and it taking on organically those qualities. Um, in, in Venezuela, especially in the 20th century, there was a a very large migrant community from a whole bunch of places. You know, you would, uh, if you wanted to go to a bakery, you'd go to a bakery owned by somebody either from Portugal or from Italy. Um, you'd go, you know, to a corner store or like the, I guess the equivalent of like a New York bodega would be owned either by someone of Chinese or of Arab descent. So having those um, immigrant communities in Venezuela, much in the same way it works for like Chifa, which is like these these Chinese restaurants um, in, mm-hmm. in Peru, um, certainly added to more of a eclectic mix in the cuisine. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like definitely a transnational, uh, you know, influence. Yes, yes it is. And there's, of course, as well, a, a, a Afro-Caribbean mm-hmm. um, influence, especially in the coastal regions, which is logical after all. Um, so let's talk about why we chose to do this and the places we we decided to check out in Chicago. Um, we decided to profile restaurants here that we thought would be representative of the cuisines that and the communities that we hail from. Um, so talk to us about, you know, the Peruvian places that, that we had considered. Yeah, so there are quite a number of Peruvian restaurants in Chicago. Um, the one that we visited was Taste of Peru, which is a pretty you know, famous Peruvian place in Chicago. It's been you know, Michelin rated and um, has been given a bunch of awards. Um, it's very lauded by Guy Fieri, <laughs> uh, who like, featured it on his like- Diners, like, drive-ins and dives? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a it's a pretty like remarkable place and it's been open since like 1998 so it's one of the you know longest running Peruvian restaurants and um, yeah so I, I mean I've always wanted to go there and it really stood out to me as a place where um, you know you find the Peruvian population in Chicago really coming together.
so I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Stephanie, on um, essentially what constitutes authenticity for you in in a restaurant setting. Um, I would say that visual language definitely has a lot to do with the initial perception one obtains from from visiting a restaurant first. I mean, what what surrounds you is is one of the most enticing things or one of the most attractive things before you get the food, just because obviously it takes a while for it to get there, no? Um, and so when we went to go visit Bien Mesabe, which is the Venezuelan restaurant that we decided to profile for the purposes of this podcast, also on the north side, not too far from Taste of Peru, uh, I was not very pleased just because it seemed, I, I want to try to put this lightly, like the kind of place you'd find in the West Loop of Chicago, which means that it looked pretty, pretty gentrified in, in terms of its, its aesthetic, like very much catering to a modern sort of yuppie, highly educated urban white population. Uh, there were some things that I recognized, like slang written in sort of these comic-style bubbles and this mural that they had towards the back, but it most certainly does not follow what I immediately think of when I think of a Venezuelan restaurant, um, not just in the U.S., but what little memories I have of a Venezuela when I was younger, as well as seeing some Venezuelan places in, in Spain um, when I visited family there. So... I, yeah, essentially, I'd, I'd love to know what, what your impressions are on how visual language influenced your, your experience and your relation with, with Taste of Prue when we walked in. So the visual language is definitely incredibly important to the experience of eating food um, because it's, it's all about the the array of sensory intakes that go along with it. Um, what struck me the most uh, when I first entered the restaurant was the music that was playing. It was like the music that's playing in the background, like just, it sounded distinctly Peruvian, probably like a marinera, which is this type of like traditional dance that's indigenous to the coastal regions of Peru. Um, and hearing that, it immediately brought me back to memories of like visiting Peru when I was a kid. Like it felt like I was in a plaza. Um, something else that caught my eye in terms of the visual language was um, that was in and, in and outside of the restaurant was that it was pretty unass- in an unassuming kind of strip mall. Um, it could be described as like a tip, you know a type of like no frills kind of mom and pop establishment, and the restaurant's interior was pretty in tune with what I would say like looks like an authentic Peruvian restaurant in the U.S., which for me has a lot to do with the visual presence and the concerted efforts of the owners to display culture in a way that isn't, you know, exotifying or presenting a caricature, but rather um, is familiar to other Peruvians. So, like, when I walked in and I tried the food, I felt at home, which is something I think is the highest recognition you could give, like, the highest form of validation for a restaurant. Um, And that's definitely high praise considering how difficult it is to get a hold of some of the ingredients necessary for the faithful reproduction of Peruvian food, uh, which was something we talked about in our interview with a waitress at Taste of Peru. She talked specifically about the challenges around making ceviche, which is one of the most famous and most popular dishes in Peruvian cuisine. Usually in Peru, an example can be ceviche. 
In Peru, the lemon is usually squeezed in the moment for the preparation of the dish. Due to the time that takes, we can't have it freshly squeezed. Rather, we squeeze lemon juice at the start of the day so that we have enough. And if it is needed to make more, then we'll do that too. For the rocoto pepper, which is also put into the ceviche, we aren't able to find it here. We can only use the canned one. The same thing goes for the corn. We have to use it frozen since we can't find it fresh in Chicago. So later in the interview, we like talked about a, a couple different um, topics with her. So like we talked about like how how she defined um, fusion food as right, yeah. you know something that's you know supposed to be changing the traditional cuisine to better fit perhaps a more like Americanized palate, um, and how Taste of Peru really takes more of a like traditional kind of style, like even in comparison to other Peruvian restaurants, um, it stays more to the roots than perhaps, um, you know, changing to like cater to a a broader audience or like a non-Peruvian audience. Right. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting on her end. Um, When she said the word fusion, I, I asked just to further clarify if she meant as though if the if the intentionality behind fusion as a concept was sort of fusing it with another food the say the way you know now in chicago you see korean tacos for instance mm-hmm. or if she meant rather americanizing the food to suit a a more popular palate if we'd like to call it that um that kind of approach definitely seems to be the one that bien me sabe the yeah. restaurant we visited was taking So it just presented a different notion of authenticity. Uh, uh, I would say perhaps a, would it be fair to say more modern? I think that's, that's a, mm. a fair open question to, to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, what is modernity? <laughs> what, right, yeah, I mean, yeah. not to go all like Valta Benjamin or something, but yeah, like, yeah. right, what, is, what, what challenges do these restaurants face in terms of faithfully reproducing these cuisines or is that even a perceived responsibility on their behalf Mm -hmm. Um, from our experience and perception of both of these restaurants they definitely thought that was the case in in the interviews Uh, and it was very interesting to hear what the owner's brother uh, had to say about these topics and a few other things too experience we just had at Taste of Biddle. Um, I had been to this restaurant two years ago when it was still like recently open and pretty pretty basic in the way like it was presented. Um, now it feels like absolute peak gentrification. Like this is genuinely shocking. You walk in and it sort of has it almost feels like a Chipotle but slightly more sit down. Um, there's like references like references to Venezuelan popular culture on the wall which like definitely gives it a bit of a feel but it's just the menu is like in this like very bougie like 
cursive script. Um, they have ceviche on the menu, which is really not something even close to being Venezuelan at all. Um, yeah, that's also not <laughs> at all. Um, the prices are absolutely astoundingly insulting. Um, there is no way by this should cost ten dollars. Um, that's that's pretty shocking. That being said, I do see some things that are pretty traditional, like the pumpkin cream. That's actually something that's very typical in Venezuela. Um, and they have some other dishes as well, like arepa filtered pabellón, which is like a shredded beef thing. That's very traditional too. Um, but but it's it's I don't know. It's I'm I'm, I'm getting very mixed re like feelings right now. Um, I think, I mean, they must be doing really well if they do catering and they're, they have that second location downtown, but this is clearly aiming for a bit of a different intention when it comes to the concept behind it compared to something like Taste of Bitter, and they're also playing generic Latin American music rather than something strictly traditional, which is what they were playing the last time I was here, so that's that's also pretty notable. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I can tell so far. Okay. All right. So, yeah, you could tell it's pretty critical. Um, it was just very jarring going in after the experience we had at Taste of Fiddle. Mm -hmm. Just because I think in part, Taste of Fiddle fit what we consider to be, or rather what we're used to, when we think about a traditional quote-unquote ethnic restaurant. Right. It was... This one was definitely a different ball game. Like, having, you know, tofu on arepas or burrata or... That was a lot. Yeah. That like, was a lot. I mean, it, it definitely shows how restaurants are perhaps evolving to, you know, more American uh, desires or, you know, dietary restrictions, which I think are really important. Yeah, for sure. You know, there, there definitely should be room for that um, in... Especially in with South American cuisine being so, uh, like meat centric or perhaps um, not super accessible for like vegetarians and vegans, but um, yeah, just it seems to like rub the wrong way. Yeah, a in a bit. way it does. Um, just because it's it's just very strange seeing a food like an arepa, which is literally what I would have for breakfast almost every day before I go to school, even in the US. Um, something that's so simple, something that's pretty cheap and easy to make, um, being taken to this level. And by no means am I against like, you know, the elevation of traditional cuisine into something higher. Um, I remember where we were at Taste of Peru, I told you about a Michelin-starred restaurant in Lima, which has been sort of renowned the world over for reconceptualizing and, 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 and redefining what Peruvian cuisine is supposed to look like. So the menu course is mm -hmm. presented based on the altitudes of the country, uh, and it's said to be very representative of different regions and, and different sort of micro-cuisines within Peru. So... There are, this is by no means a criticism of, of elevating or taking um, traditional dishes and sort of more conservative foods into high cuisine. That's, that's not the point of this. Rather, it's more of a 
of a of a attention a, a a question regarding the intentionality of these choices and who they're made for mm-hmm. because for instance if the objective is to offer a meat substitute the case can be made that that meat substitute could be integrated in a way that still is faithful to more traditional recipes rather than doing something as outright as tofu um which again that's that's kind of a a look um same thing with mushrooms and anatty but it's just not not very very normal to me mm-hmm. um yeah that's definitely a judgment but uh, and 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 this is nothing new right like venezuelan bull grill when it was open in lincoln park most of the menu was in Spanish, and then they had a section that was very clearly in English and followed the name of the place, like literally Venezuelan Bowl Grill. Like they, mm-hmm. in a Chipotle style bowl, they would mix ingredients together. Um, while in sort of a more traditional context, you see them laid out on a plate, like you see, you know, the meat next to the beans, next to the rice, just sort of all separate out. Yeah. Yes, all separate. Mm-hmm. So this is not, you know, by no means is this is this new. It's just perhaps seeing it approach what one would see at a place like Latinicity Food Hall, which mm-hmm. is a a place in the Loop in downtown Chicago, inside Block Thirty Seven, which is a pretty swanky mixed use development uh, right on State Street, where you walk in and it's supposed to give you sort of the vibe of ordering things from food trucks, but it's it's pretty artificial. It reminded me of sort of like the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot in Orlando, mm-hmm. frankly. Uh, so did the prices. Like three tacos for 14 bucks is, is a little yikes. Um, so, bien me sabe, what, what they're doing now definitely seems to be more adjacent to the kind of, of culinary experience that Latinicity is offering as opposed to what Taste of Peru is offering. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd say it's actually pretty fairly in the middle, where yeah. they still have the intentionality of retaining some traditional recipes mm-hmm. uh, and trying to be sort of good representatives of a, a culture and a cuisine. But at the same time, uh, there are sacrifices that are evidently being made. Uh, it would definitely appear that those sacrifices, if we want to call them that, are intentional and calculated. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely came up in the interview that exactly. we had uh, with the brother of the owner. He was talking a lot about how, yeah, those changes were very much driven by you know the financial needs of a restaurant, which in the end of the day is a business. Exactly. I mean, it's not... Um, it's not very easy to balance, you know, being 100% authentic or, you know, whatever we want to conceptualize as that um, with, you know, also just needing to meet a bottom line. So when we sat down with Humberto, the brother of the owner of Bien Mesabe, he had more to say on how the restaurant is prevalently catering to an American audience. Something that has been a trend in the country is gluten-free food. 
So it's something that we're trying to exploit, especially with the arepas. It's relatively healthy and doesn't have fat. So we always try to bring attention to this aspect uh, to Americans. And I can tell you with high degree of precision that 60% of the clientele in this restaurant is American. It's a hard market to compete in. Especially for like a lesser known uh, cuisine, right. like Venezuelan food, which you don't really see all that often. Exactly. And this is also a place that was established far more recently, right? Like this is mm-hmm. not like Taste of Peru, which has been there for like since 1998. Mia Mesabe has been there for less than three years. So it's in a different climate. It's in a different location. And that's what makes, I guess, negotiating authenticity against the fact that, as we said, at the end of the day, this is still a business. Um, that's that's a question that I definitely don't think has a conclusive answer. Mm-hmm. I think it's largely dependent on time, space, location, who your clientele is, uh, what your concept and your objective is. Um, but but yeah, it was it was definitely an an interesting experience. I can see the how and the why of what they're doing. But at the same time, there's still a small part of me that is like, oh man, I wish this were a little bit more traditional or more of what I conceptualize as representative. And I think a big part of why I feel that way is because of Venezuela's recent political history. Um, and how that has forced a diaspora essentially all over the world, prevalently in the Western Hemisphere, um, but certainly in the U.S. and in Spain, but in Colombia, in Peru, in Argentina, mm-hmm. um, over 10% of the country's population, we're talking over 3 million people, have left since 2014 due to the um, economic mismanagement of Nicolás Maduro's regime. That means that, essentially, I come from a place that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a hard thing to face. Yeah, a place you can't go back. No, no, so. I can't go back. Like, if I were to go back, I would most certainly be detained and interrogated, not just for living in the U.S., but also having worked in the public sector um, in other countries that are not Venezuela and in countries that are very much not allied with it. So that means that... My perspective as a Venezuelan immigrant, as someone who is from essentially a forced diaspora, we don't have that much to hold on to because we can't go back. And if we do, it's not the same. So what do we have? We have memories and we have food. We have the recipes we've passed down from generation to generation. And so... For me, keeping those traditions is very meaningful. It's very valuable. And seeing something like this is jarring when what you're expecting to find is something that will trigger one of the few memories one can have of one's original homeland rather than seeing the food that my mom used to make for me being taken to a degree where that's not recognizable no it's not it's not um and i definitely respect what what our interviewee had to say um and i understand that 60 percent of the clientele is american 
but he said, you know, that he wanted the food to feel as if it makes Venezuelans feel at home. And I don't really know if it did that for me. Mm. Is that a fair assessment? I don't know. I mean, I... I mean, it's your assessment. Right. So. And it de- and I would say, especially considering I have been to this restaurant in the past and a couple times before it was remodeled, when it was freshly opened, the price points were different. The way the food was being presented was very different um, and far more used to what I have experienced growing up. And it did make me feel a lot better. It made me feel far less homesick or just missing my family. Um, Mm -hmm. So I guess especially because I have that context of having been to this restaurant in the past, seeing where it is now is, is, again, nothing short of of jarring and surprising to me. Um, Of course, I wish them all the best. I mean, I think it's wonderful to have some degree of Venezuelan representation in this city. I think that they they're visible they Mm -hmm. are you know keeping some degree of of the traditions and and the the sort of national identity alive but that doesn't take away from the fact that that i think it's it's fair and justified for me personally to take a critical point of view as to what they are doing and how that makes me in particular feel mm-hmm. an american that goes in and orders their 10 dollar arepa with gentrified ingredients won't feel that way they'll see you know something new something different something that fits the gluten-free craze and is relatively <laughs> healthy compared to other options out there and they'll enjoy it and that's fine it's delicious it's good i'm glad it, it opens up people's people's palates and people's minds and and i think that that is a very good and responsible sort of social purpose that this restaurant is is fulfilling be that intentional or not yeah i mean i i definitely i definitely think that we should be critical um of everything but yeah it's definitely a step towards you know Mm -hmm. something that is positive that is you know representation and visibility uh, especially of like a forced diaspora um i mean yeah like these these kinds of establishments um you know might be like few and far in between they are and um you know they they have a a heavy burden to uphold but at the same time right. like that's somewhere to grow that's somewhere where perhaps like by you know, making their own cheese at the restaurant right, or, yeah. you know, having, you know, not just like the typical or like stereotypical Venezuelan dishes like arepa, which most people know about, but also having like, they had like different plates from different regions of Venezuela. Yes, um, so they're, they're definitely making a, a step towards, you know, a wider representation um, that I think like other restaurants you know as well can be can be taking that step yeah for sure and and i really like your point about it being a heavy burden it is and that's why i i think it's important to recognize that my criticism can only go so far right and we come back to the same point of and i think that that's the central theme of this Mm -hmm. episode how does a business negotiate authenticity or notions of authenticity against their bottom line and making a name and a space for themselves 
that's a really hard challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super important that we recognize that and that we keep that in mind as we continue to explore other places in Chicago that are Venezuelan or Peruvian or Uruguayan or Gujarati or whatever. Yeah, whatever that, it is. Yeah. That are supposed to be non-traditional food. Um, and to just sort of step back and think about the how and the why these places are here and the who meaning that they can take, who they're for, mm-hmm. and, and what they're aiming to be. staff of Taste of Peru and Bien Misabe for taking the time to talk with us, and a special thanks to our instructor, David Ansari, for giving us the opportunity to produce this podcast as an end project for our course, Migration Trajectories, Ethnographies of Place, and the Production of Diasporas. 